0: We are in the book of Malachi, chapter 3. We've been going through the book on Sunday mornings, looking at a group of people who have grown indifferent to God. Indifference is a very dangerous position that a follower of God can find themselves within at any moment in time in their relationship with God. Indifference grows over a period of time and often is the result of an individual going through a difficult time here in this world. Uh, And therefore allowing that difficult time, those difficult circumstances to cool and to temper their relationship with God and move them into a place of indifference with God. The children of Israel, after being released from their Babylonian captivity, came back to the land of Israel And after coming back to the land of Israel, they found that Israel, Jerusalem specifically, was an absolute heap of ruins. And so not only was it discouraging to come back, but they came back to absolutely nothing. And so they found themselves in a very vulnerable position. But God encouraged them along the way to endure, to persevere, and to get the job done. He sent Nehemiah to get the wall built around Jerusalem. Through Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah, God said, I will be with you as you restore and rebuild the temple. And then he encouraged them further to continue keeping on. However, though, after the wall had been rebuilt, after the city of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, after the temple had been rebuilt... Things were still very difficult for the people of Israel. Everything was a reminder of of what once they had and no longer have because nothing seemed to be as good as what they originally had under the reign of King David and under his son King Solomon. The walls were rebuilt but not to the splendor in which they once were. The temple was built but not to the splendor that it once was that Solomon had built. And then it came to the difficulties that they were experiencing there in the land. The, the crops were not yielding the produce that they once had. They were having difficulties with the nations around them. They were having uh, problems in their own personal families. Uh, divorce was running rampant throughout the society. And all of this continued for about 100 years after their resettlement of the land of Israel. And by this time now, they have grown very discouraged and that discouragement has led them to a state of indifference before God. That indifference then was based upon the fact first and foremost that they didn't believe that God loved them any longer. And that's the first thing that God addresses in the letter that Malachi uh, proclaims onto the people. He says, I have loved you. And then they respond, well, how have you loved us? And he reminds them of his love towards them. And since they no longer believed that God loved them, they began to despise his name, no longer respect, reverence, or honor God in the manner in which he should. They began to offer uh, polluted offerings unto him. Instead of giving God the best in their sacrifices of their sheep and lambs and so forth, they gave God the leftovers. They gave God that which had no value. They despised his name. They didn't really care about it. And this indifference even played a part in their own personal lives in in regards to their families. Where Jewish men were divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying into wives of Gentile nations around them in hopes of furthering their personal wealth, uh, gaining places of prominence and position within the nation of Israel itself through these allegiance created through these marriages. And yet they still weren't happy. They weren't satisfied. They still were greatly discouraged. And though they were going through the motions with God, God saw their heart. And God saw that their heart was far from Him. And so He sends the prophet Malachi to them to try to draw them back to a heart of love for God. Throughout each and every prophet of the Old Testament you will find that there is a portion of that prophet's writing in which God gives them the opportunity to come back to him. It's an appeal. It's an it's a invitation. Oh, why don't you come back to me? Why perish when you can live? Why suffer any longer when you can prosper with me, he says, throughout the Old Testament to his people? And here this morning we come to that place in Malachi where God is now giving them the invitation to come back. Won't you return to me? For their last petition against God, their last complaint was one of the things that they believed that they were lacking that also resulted in their lack of uh, prosperity was the coming of the Messiah. And, And God says, the Messiah is coming. And a forerunner will precede him. And then you will see that I will follow that forerunner. Undoubtedly, we noticed last time together that he was speaking of John the Baptist followed by Christ himself. But he asked the question, now you want and desire the Messiah to come to judge the nations around you, but are you prepared for the Messiah to judge you? To look at you objectively? To correct you where you are wrong? And they weren't prepared for that. And if they would have remained in that position before God, they would have been consumed in the judgment of God. And now God encourages them, I'm not going to consume you because I love you and I am faithful to my promises to you. But return to me. Come back to me, he says. For I am here. I am your father. I love you. I care for you. You are my people. You can always come back to me. Why refuse? Why uh, be so stubborn that you resist this invitation that I give you to come back? But see, it's difficult to come back. It's difficult to return to God if you don't feel that you've ever left God. It's difficult to repent when you don't feel that you have sinned before God. And that's where we find them today as we pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 3. Let us read our text. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And there's the invitation. God is calling his people back to him. The door to God is always open through Jesus Christ. Jesus gave a parable of the prodigal son that gives us the imagery then shows us and demonstrates us that even if we wander away from God, even if we turn our backs on God for a period of time, God welcomes us back with open arms if we will come back to Him. The door is always open to God through Jesus Christ. It is not God who has moved, it is we who have moved. That's what he is saying here. And that is consistent with New Testament teaching. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As he says here in verse 6, he is an immutable God. He does not change. Now, there are many who believe that the God of the Old Testament is one God, the God of the New Testament is another, but I tell you it's all one and the same. And God of the Old Testament is simply provoked by the disobedience of his people to react in the manner in which he has. He has but the door is always open to return, to come back to God. And he's inviting his people in this indifferent state to come back to him. But unfortunately, they do not understand and they do not realize that they have departed from him. Notice their response. How can we return to you? It's as if they were saying, how can we repent if we don't know how we have sinned against you? But God says very clearly that from the very beginning, you've turned aside, you've gone sideways on every statute I've ever given. And the word statute means laws, directions, commands, um, and so forth. Whatever I've said, you've done just the opposite. (laughs) If you're a parent, you know that all too well. The moment you tell your child not to touch something is the moment they go after it. Now, don't touch this. Ah, I gotta have it, you know. Or you tell them, you know, do this. And it's, they won't do it for nothing. The children of Israel were the same way throughout their entire relationship with God. Whatever God told them, they wanted to do the opposite. He says, from the very beginning, you have been like this. You have gone sideways from me. Now return to me. But again, we are reluctant to do so if we feel as if we have, we have always been there, that we are in that same place and position before him, that we haven't wandered away, that we haven't turned our backs on him, that we haven't backslided, backslid in some way, some form, in some uh, condition. We're going to be reluctant to return to Him. But God doesn't change. He doesn't move. It's we who move. It's we who slide backwards. It's we who sin against God. It's we who turn our backs on the Lord. For the New Testament writer told us clearly in James 4, 8-10, through 10, he says draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The first component of that is you drawing near to God. You coming back to God. You turning towards God. And then he goes on, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourned and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's an invitation to come back to him. Because we have left him. When the prodigal son left with his inheritance, let us understand that the father remained in the same place where he could always be found. The father did not move after the child left. He was right where he always was to allow his child to return to him. So this invitation is given, but they respond here in verse 7, for how shall we return? Well, we don't know what we have done. Really? He's been addressing that point from the beginning of the the letter. But God says here now, clearly, oh, you don't know? Okay, I'll tell you. Verse 8, will man rob God? Seems impossible. Yet, he says, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? I will tell you that I am convinced that once a person enters that vulnerable position, that dangerous position of indifference before God, they become blind to their own reality. God says very clearly, will man rob God? Is it possible for man to rob God? And yet you have robbed me well how? how how have we robbed you god that's an impossibility well no it's not and god will show us in a moment how they have robbed him but let us take for um, let's take a moment to consider this fact the basic act or crime of robbery means that something has been taken away from someone in in whom which that is owned and taken by another who does not own it. Right? Basic element of robbery. So he is saying to us that there is something that God owns that we are taking from him. Oh, that's interesting. What is it possibly that God owns that we are keeping for ourselves instead of returning to God. (laughs) You gave away the punchline. In God's case, Psalms 24, 1 through 2 tells us, "...the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers." Answer to the question, everything belongs to God. Hebrews 2.10 tells us, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Notice what the Hebrew writer says in the New Testament, conveying the same truth that the psalmist wrote, For whom and by whom all things exist psalms 89:11 the heavens are yours the earth also is yours the world and all that is in it you have founded them and then paul quoting 1 corinthians 10:26 states very clearly for the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof meaning everything belongs to God. Now what does that mean for you and I? If everything belongs to Him and He gives things onto us, what does that make us as individuals under the care of God's instruction? The technical term would be the term steward. We become a steward of all that God has blessed us. And this is what the New Testament teaches, that all that we have has been given to us by God, and therefore we are mere stewards of what God has given us. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 reads, And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Meaning that all that we have, we have been given by God, and now we are to use for the glory of God. And this was true in the Old Testament also. And God said to his people that out of what I give you, I require a tithe back, a tenth of that back. Look with me in verse uh, 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, he says. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions the children of Israel were instructed that out of everything God had blessed them with individually, personally, and as a nation, 10% of it should go back to Him. In that way the Levitical priests could be supplied and provided for, therefore they did not have to work, but they could uh, be about the God's business, uh, ministering to God and ministering to the people, uh, etc., it also allowed for the tribe of Levi, so the priest's families, to, again, devote themselves to the work of God. This is the way God constructed and designed the nation of Israel to work. Ten percent of this whatever was given was then taken unto the Lord. There was an annual tithe that was given each and every year, numbers eighteen twenty one through 24. And that tithe was a t- 10% of the annual contributions in which God provided for the people. And then a tenth of that offering went therefore for the, um, uh, to sustain and to provide for the Levitical priests there in the temple. Numbers 18, 25 through 32. Now, there was a portion of that annual tide that could be kept back for the specific purpose of having a meal with a Levitical priest and sitting down and, and forming a relationship with him to allow him to better minister unto you. Even back in the Old Testament, God was concerned about relationship between God and man and wanted to demonstrate that through the Levitical priest so a portion of the tithe could be kept back, and therefore they could have a little time with the Levitical priest, have a meal with him, and he could then minister to them personally and privately concerning whatever issues that they were personally experiencing. Then there was the three-year annual tithe, or tri-annual tithe, I guess it would be called. and That tithe was then given for the purpose of providing for the poor, the widows, the orphans of the nation of Israel. Leviticus 27.30 states, Every tithe of the land, whether it is of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, it, it, this is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. In 27 verse. 32 and every tithe of of the uh, herds and flocks every 10th animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff shall be holy or separated or given unto the Lord so the 10th one of every one belonged to God this was his and this was very serious unto the Lord for example if one was bringing to Jerusalem their annual tithes or their triannual tithes where they were carrying him from a long distance and said, you know what? I don't want to bring all of this fruit and grain and, fr- and so forth. You know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to convert it to money and I'm going to bring that money onto the temple and given in, in that respect. And they could do that. But to do that, they had to then add 20% to make sure that they were not profiting off of God's 10th uh, of the percentage and making sure that they also were not uh, using it or robbing God in any way, shape, or form. And this was very serious to God. Now remember, everything belongs to God. Everything is given unto us by God, and we are mere stewards of it. And what he gives us, he is basically saying 90% is for you, and 10% belongs to me under the old covenant that Moses uh, was given by God at Mount Sinai. But they had, by this time, started neglecting the true meaning of the tithes, and it was lost altogether. No longer did they rejoice over the 90% that they got. They wanted it all for themselves, thinking that, well, I worked for it. It must be mine. I planted, so it must be mine. Uh, I, it was given to me, so it must be mine. Totally negating the fact that everything had been given them on, uh, to, to themselves by God. And by the time Jesus had come, the religious leaders believed that tithing the smallest herbs would gain them personal righteousness. So some were so extreme that they would take their little herb garden or chia pet and they would cut off 10% of that chia pet and give it on to God, not as a tribute, not in worshiping him and honoring him and glorifying him, but because they thought it was going to create further righteousness for themselves and God says that's silly there were others though that dismissed the tithe altogether they just didn't want to have anything to do with it they didn't uh, acknowledge it they didn't provide for it, etc and this is how the nation was sinning against God for they were robbing God of what technically belonged to Him but not only were they robbing God God says, don't you understand that you're robbing yourself? Verse 9, look with me in your text. You are cursed with a curse. Now, why does he say that? They're under the Old Testament law. He says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. This is not a New Testament principle. It's an Old Testament principle. And he says, you are under that. That's what you're experiencing. That's why you're having such difficulties. I am not blessing you for what you are doing. For you are robbing me, he says. You and the whole nation of you. And then he goes on to challenge them in verse 10. Notice with me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Go. Per, offer unto me what you stated you will, fill the storehouses. The storehouses were for that triannual tithe. These storehouses were then to be filled so that when the poor, the widow, the orphan had need, they could always be taken care of. And God says, go and fill those things and test me. Prove me wrong, he says. And if you will do so, I will provide for you so you never have need again. I will be faithful, he says, if you will be faithful and return to me, says the Lord. Because not only have you robbed me, but you're robbing yourself of the blessings that I would pour upon you. And notice in verse 11 he says, I will rebuke the devourer, that is the locusts that are ruining their crops and their fields so that it will will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not Fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to take away that which is hindering and I'm going to bountifully provide for those things that you are in need of if you'll only be obedient to what I have asked you to be obedient to. Because not only are you robbing yourselves of the blessings that I have for you, he says to his people, but you're robbing the nations around you. Verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This difficulty that you're having now will be removed from you if you will return to me. This is the way God got his people's attention when they were disobedient, now here in this position of indifference, he would allow things to get more difficult for them. Long-sufferingly, patiently waiting for them to return to him. God does this in the New Testament in the manner of chastisement, where God will sometimes allow us to go through various trials to to gain our attention, to uh, bring to our attention sin that needs to be repented of simply because God loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And God is saying, test me. Everything is mine. I have kettles on a thousand hills. Test me and see if I will not provide everything that you are in need of. But just do it in obedience to me and not only you will be blessed but all the nations around you will be blessed in the old testament there were many times that individuals were apprehensive and and they were hesitant in attacking the nation of israel because they had seen how god had defended them in the past they had a reputation amongst the people When they went into captivity for their disobedience, they caught the people's attention around them and said, what did they do to their God? They must have done something bad to have him take them out of their land. What has happened? And God says, I can bless you and therefore the world will see you blessed and then turn to me for salvation. That's what he is saying. If they will be obedient... And fill up the storehouses. As one wrote, he said, Whatever good happens to us should be turned into a testimony to the goodness of our God. Then unbelievers will note our blessedness and be drawn to our God. That was his hope. That's where Israel failed miserably to be a witness and a light unto the world. And God says, test me to see if I will not provide for you. Within this attitude of the resistance of giving God what was rightfully his, we find other sins also entangled within this disobedience. Undoubtedly, the people had become selfish and greedy. It was all about them. They believed that everything that they had was theirs. And they had no obligation to God whatsoever, and therefore they did not give what was rightfully His. It's obvious that the people were not trusting the Lord to provide for them, feeling that they could not give and still have enough for themselves. They didn't have the faith and the trust in God, even though throughout the Old Testament God had always been faithful to His people, always. It was only their disobedience that provoked him to wrath, to provoke him to judgment, etc. But God was always, always faithful to his people, and is today. The people were not giving their best, they were holding that for themselves. They did not believe that God desired, or deserved, I should say, their best. And so whatever was left over is what he received. The people were giving begrudgingly and half-heartedly. They had no sincere desire to give or to serve the Lord, but rather only to fulfill their own personal obligations. No longer did they see God as the one who governs their personal lives. They saw that their new life, their life in Him, was theirs to spend as they saw fit. And the people were ungrateful for what the Lord had given them. And were unwilling to return anything to the Lord. It's amazing to me. He brought them back into their land just as he said he would. They had a new wall. They had a new city. They had a new temple. God had been faithful to his promises and yet... They were ungrateful for what they did have. Well, we had it was so much better before, you know. And and this temple, well, it, you know, it looks like a mishnah. It's, it's not nearly as good as it once was, you know. And not grateful at all for what they did have. And the people failed to realize that all they had belonged to the Lord, because everything they owned had been given to them by Him. And so now we read such a text and we ask the questions, well, what about us today? I preface what I'm about to say with this. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He does not change in any way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, everything that's in this world, on this world, of this world is his, right? It all belongs to him. I find myself a mere steward of what God has blessed me with. When it comes to my marriage, I see my wife as a blessing from the Lord and therefore I should treat her accordingly. My daughter I see as a blessing from the Lord at times. And I treat her as such and raise her accordingly as the scriptures instruct me to. The home that I have, I see as a blessing from the Lord. When Dean and I were getting married and we were trying to purchase a home, we kept bidding on places and getting overbid by others at that time. And we finally settled on the place that we have currently today. And we didn't know why the Lord would put us where he did. Now, it was halfway between her parents' house and my parents' house, so that was convenient. But long-term, we didn't understand why God put us where He did. But you know what? God did. Because of the home in which He provided for us and the minimum mortgage payment that we were required to pay, it allowed me to go full-time as your pastor here at this church. See, God knew from the beginning. He says, I'm going to bless you with this place. And you're not going to understand it at first, but I understand it. And therefore, we were able to serve you in the capacity that we do today because of the minimal overhead expense that we have. And God is so good. Everything that he's given me is his. When it comes to my finances... Here's where Christians make mistakes. They don't see themselves as stewards of what God has given them. Now, I want to again preface this by stating, you know how we approach finances here at this church. We do not beg. We do not solicit. We do not put a money-mometer behind us, unless it's for my Christmas present. We allow you to be led by the Holy Spirit in your giving. But when individual Christians specifically struggle with their personal finances and budgeting and keeping things balanced and so forth, the first thing I have to ask of them is, are you honoring the Lord first and foremost with your finances by giving on Him? And often I discover they're not. Well, if you're not right with him in this way how do you expect to be right with him in every other way it's an act of worship giving on to god it shows that every aspect of my life has been submitted to him as the lord of my life as i worship him in my singing as i worship him in my service as i worship him in my reading and my prayer Uh, I worship him with my giving. And all of this being said, I now conclude with this statement. I believe that Christians should be the most generous people in the world today. We may see individuals like Bill Gates giving uh, out of philanthropy uh, huge sums of money. But remember, Bill Gates is not giving out of his poverty. He's giving out of his prosperity, isn't he? And I still applaud the giving. Because I think I read somewhere that it's better to give than to receive. But as Christians, even out of the little bit that we have, God must be honored first and foremost. God must be. And allow him then to provide... Further for my needs. Now, I believe that we should live within our means. And I know that's hard in our society and in our, na- in our country today. Credit is readily available for everybody at any moment, at any time. You can't go anywhere without getting another offer of credit for some reason, some way. Even now, going to 7 Eleven. I can buy a Slurpee on time. Don't have enough money for the Slurpee? Ten cents down now, ten cents a week, and that Slurpee will be yours. I'm kidding, of course, but it's become that easy. A year ago, I went to buy a new car because I desperately needed one and that uh, my daughter was going to need a car and, well, of course, I'm not going to give her the new one. I'm taking that. Um, and... I went in and I called Dina and she was at work. I said, I'm going to go in. I got an hour. I'm going to go look at some cars and check it out and so forth. And so I went and I shopped, and a, a brother who worked at the dealership was helping me with the process. And I signed a couple of forms and we settled on a car. And he said, Okay, well, I just need you to sign one more piece of paper and you can drive home right now. I said, What? What do you mean? The last time I had purchased a car 15 years ago, it took about four and a half hours. This time it took 45 minutes. And I'm driving home. I said, honey, I bought a car. She said, what? How'd you do that? She wasn't mad because she knew we were going to buy a car. I said, I don't know. I, I signed a piece of paper. I got a car. That quick. You can be given a loan. And put yourself in a financial place of difficulty if you're not careful. But. The Christians that I have seen who are able to live within their means and are willing to honor God first and foremost with their, uh, with their finances are Christians that I find very often are Christians that are not in need. God's always providing. So what does the Bible say About giving today, and this is what we will conclude with. There are four questions that I want to ask, uh, ask, or I should say, ask and answer for you this morning. Does the Bible ask for giving in the New Testament? And the answer to that question is yes. But are we still governed by the 10% principle of the Old Testament? My answer to that is no. Tithing is an Old Testament principle. It is only found two places in the New Testament. It is found in Matthew 23, 23 and 24, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as mercy and faithfulness. These ought to have been done without neglect, without, excuse me, without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They were still under the law. Tithing was prescribed to them and so forth. The second place of tithing in the New Testament is found in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about an uh, individual tithing to one named Melchizedek. It was Abraham. Giving a tenth unto God. Again, Old Testament. Taking these and worshiping God, who I believe Melchizedek was, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, a theophany. And as a result, he was honored by God for his giving of what he had. But these are the only two places in the New Testament that tithes are talked about. I do not believe that we are governed any longer by the 10% principle. Now that being said of the law, we are governed by a higher principle, and that is of generosity, which we'll look at together quickly. Is giving instructed in the New Testament? Absolutely it is. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you to give so willingly, so cheerfully that the word cheerful there in the Hebrew and Greek is actually hilarious. That you love giving unto God, that it brings you such joy to give unto God. So am I saying to you, this morning, that if you cannot give in that regard, in that way that you should not give to God, yes, that's what I'm saying. Because it does you no good. Well, good, I'm off the hook. No, no. No, no. See, God wants to change your heart. Your heart's wrong already. You're just like those indifferent in the book of Malachi. That's not an excuse. I'm not giving cheerfully, so therefore I won't give it all. Come on, pal. Come on. Wake up. And the reason being is because, again, God is a very generous God and we should be the most generous people in the world today. So on the first day, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, which is Sunday, and the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. The early church made it a practice that giving was given every week there in the church, and some was set aside for this collection in which Paul is gathering to take to Jerusalem. What is the standard for giving? What is the proportion of giving? It is no longer 10%, but notice as Paul says here, it, has, it is as you prosper. So it should be in conjunction with what God has blessed you with. See, I don't believe someone who is blessed with $100 million should tithe 10%. If someone is blessed with $100 million, they should tithe 50%. Because if they can't live on $50 million, then the problem's with them. Right? But be generous in your giving. It's not the amount, it's in the proportion of what God has blessed you with. Is 10% maybe a good place to start? Sure, but I would say out of that heart of generosity, pray and ask the Lord, Lord, what would you desire? It's all yours anyways, Lord. You want me to write a check? Well, how much, Lord? Because I want to further what you're doing. The money that you provide here at this church, as you see, we live very modestly. 20 years as a church, we're still debt-free. If God doesn't provide it, we don't do it. Because God says, I'll provide every one of your needs. And if he doesn't provide it, I guess we don't need it. But that being said, we have this instruction of giving in proportion to the way God has prospered you. So pray about what God would have you to give each and every week unto him as a honoring and worship of Him. That's the way you must see it. You must see your giving as worshiping God. Now, is there a blessing in giving unto God in the New Testament? The answer is yes. I have a personal phrase that I operate under and that is, I can never outgive God. I can never outgive Him he's very generous. I have seen God provide so many different ways at so many different times uh, to prove himself, to show himself so great. It's incredible. You know, often when Dean and I, when we first started, you know, we were making very little money here at the church and we were relying more and more upon God And as we were going through ministry, as many of you remember, she got pregnant within two or three years of us starting the church. We did not have traditional health insurance at that time and and so forth. And so we had to pay cash for everything as we went. And as we were paying cash as she was going to her doctor over the course of the nine months, we would bring a little bit of money in each week. And he was more than willing to work with us and so forth. And one particular uh, uh, day of her appointment that she had in the afternoon, we realized that we were $100 short. And we're like, oh, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do. We're $100 short, and we need to bring this money in to keep current with the doctor. And so we prayed. And I came out to the church and I did some work out here and then she was at home and as she was going through things, as she was cleaning and so forth, she noticed a album, a photo album of our wedding and she got a little nostalgic and she wanted to remember how good I used to look. And so <laughs> she opened up the album and she started looking through it and at the back of the album there was a card that we had not opened for our wedding. And she opened the card, and in, her, in the card was one crisp $100 bill that God had put in there just when we needed it. He He's just so far ahead of the game, isn't he? He's just, you can't tell, oh Lord, I'm surprised by this. And God says, I'm not. I can handle it, don't worry about it. And over and over and over and over and over again. I'll never forget, there was one particular Sunday here at the church that we needed uh, we we, ha- we needed about four thousand dollars to make the bills for the month, and we had about two hundred and forty six dollars in the bank. And I said, "Oh Lord, you know if you could only maybe provide two thousand, and then maybe we can stay current on a couple and so forth." And so I we just took it to the Lord and we prayed and said, "Lord, this is your church and whatever you want to do and so forth." And Lord, we want you to- We want to be a good witness. We want everything, Lord, so if you can provide 2000 we would be so, so grateful. Well, we went and counted the offerings that Sunday, and unfortunately God did not provide $2,000. He provided seven. And no one knew about it except us and God. What, what does God have that He cannot give us? Why should we not honor Him with all that He has given us? If you will, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 15. Is there a blessing in giving? Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, he says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. But this is God's promise to us. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15, governed by generosity and giving in proportion to our prosperity meaning however amount God has given us. He writes the point is this Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So if you plant a little, you're only going to get a little back. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's a simple matter of principle. If you just sow a few little seeds, you're just going to get a few little plants. If you sow further, you're going to get much more. Now, some have turned this and made it a catapult into... Uh, soliciting giving, saying, look, if you give 10%, God's going to give you 100%. We are not making that claim or statement. What we are saying is that God sees, and He sees your heart. And if you will be generous, you will never outgive God, and His generosity towards you will always be focused. Verse 7, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. What is he not able to give you? So that you, I'm sorry, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, underline that, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for the sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. That's the purpose of the enrichment, which though uh, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Not only are they blessed because of what you're providing, but the testimony in which you are are providing also. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing Uh, grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Read that over and over and over again. Quickly I want to give you four things that keep us from being the generous people that God wants us to be. Because it's not God. He's generous as all get out. It's us. Number one, we forget that we are mere stewards of all that God has for us that what we have does not belong to us. We are mere stewarding it, managing it for God. Number two, we are, angry, uh, we are angry in the manner in which the churches abuse money today. And to that I say, amen and amen. I understand that there are many churches that make people feel like they're mere means to an end that you are just their constant pocketbook providing and giving for their programs, their wants, their things, and so forth. And you don't see the correlation between your giving and worshiping God through your giving and the manner in which the church uses the money for his glory. I get that. Okay, there are too many CEOs in the pulpits today. There are too many individuals that see individuals just with dollar signs. I'm allergic to them too just with dollar signs amongst their heads you know when i see you i, I don't see you know oh then they give this much and they give that much and they don't give anything i don't see you as that but many churches do unfortunately so people don't know what they're giving to anymore and they see the abuse of the money or they see money being uh used for things that are inappropriate i understand that i get that But that's not god it's not on god that's on us right Number three, a lack of faith. But you just don't understand. It's like, you know, after I get all my bills paid, I have absolutely nothing left over. Start over. Start over. Cut back on whatever you need to cut back on and put God first instead of last each and every month. And I would encourage you to read Matthew 6, 25 through 33, where it says, why do you worry about all the things that the Gentiles worry about, your clothes and everything else? And you're troubled and you're up at night and you're fretting and so forth. But God says, seek me first and my righteousness and everything else shall be added unto you. If you're going to seek his righteousness and you're going to put him first in your giving. And number four, we don't have the right hearts. Our generosity should be abundant and governed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, each and every week, when it comes to my time of giving, I therefore pray and ask the Lord what He would have me to give, knowing full well that He will provide for me. And I am honoring Him with my finances, and I am honoring Him with my giving because of all that He has blessed me with already. God is not in need of your money, God is not broke. He's got a triple a credit rating on Dun & Bradstreet, but he never has to borrow. That's why we don't solicit on God's behalf because he's not soliciting. What he is saying is that be generous. Be generous. I leave you with this verse this morning. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he is in need of anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and notice that last word, everything. It all starts with him. It all starts with him. I read verse 8 once again. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, God says. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house And therefore, and thereby I should say, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Father, we thank you for your word.